Hello, welcome to the Propane Fitness Podcast. We are here today with Greg... Le- oh, bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> Greg R. Bollocks. That's one way to say it. We- <laughs> We've had a, a warning. A call recorder may not record video properly if... So you just need to open Skype. Ah, okay. And make it non-full screen, I would imagine. I'll move the notes over to this side. There we go. <laughs> You're listening to the Propane Fitness Podcast, your ultimate resource for fat loss and muscle gain with none of the gimmicks. With your hosts, Yusuf and Johnny. Simple rules, dramatic results. Hello and welcome to the Propane Fitness Podcast. We are here today with Greg Lehman, physiotherapist, chiropractor and strength coach in Canada. So I've been following some of Greg's stuff um, for a while and he's got such a grounded and um, inquisitive approach to pain and back pain specifically, which is what we're interested in and hopefully will be the topic of this podcast. Hello, Greg. Hello. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Super. You? Very good. Yeah, good. We uh, we managed to get the recording on after a couple of technical glitches <laughs> to begin with as well. So, Greg, can you give us a bit of a background about yourself? Oh, no, I hate doing that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh uh quickly i did a bachelor in kinesiology like exercise science and then a master's in biomechanics um with Stu mcgill so many years ago um mainly on exercise biomechanics and like spine manipulation that chiros do Uh, and then i went to chiropractic college here in canada and i was able to keep researching like I, i did a so that was like the early 2000s where we were doing tons of research on like instability training and wobble boards and doing Swiss ball work and we were measuring EMG because it was it was so popular at the time. We didn't think it was that big of a deal. That was sort of the uh, the thrust of the research, like stop doing these exercises on a Swiss ball or an exercise ball, just do basic big lifts and that's plenty. You don't need to do all of these things. Um, and then I went, uh, then I was in practice for a long time and I still am. And then I, I went back to, to physio school as well. Uh, and, and now I, I'm in practice still, uh, and, and I, I teach a course on like biomechanics, pain, sports medicine, stuff like that. Right. I see. So you've had, um, sort of a, a number of, um, a number of backgrounds, I guess, as you've, as you've progressed yeah. through your career. Um, what's, what's generally stuck and what's, uh, what have you discarded? I guess that's a bit of a big question. Mm-hmm. You know what? You know what sticks is is something that Stu taught uh, years ago, and other people talk too. It's sort of just it's all about managing stress or or load, uh, and and how you respond to it, right? Like the uh, so in terms of injury or performance, it's just like how much load can you tolerate, and you'll get stronger and and you'll adapt. If if you do too much for you at that particular time in your life, then you have to back off a bit. And then, and then there, there's so much work that supports that, right? You don't always have to kill yourself in the gym. You know, the 80-20 rule is a nice rule to go by. Like 80% is relatively low intensity and 20% is really hard. And, and then with psychosocial factors, you, you know that your recovery is also influenced by everything in your life, right? It's, it's not just biomechanics and physical load. So really simple things. And I, and I still practice like that to, to this day. So that's more of a preventing injury than than treating, I suppose. Yeah, uh, you, you know what, uh, and and treating as well, like treating injury and, and, and for performance. It's always interesting that 
treating injuries and preventing injuries is, is often related to good performance for the majority of people. I, I'd say like a really elite level, you're, you're walking that fine line, you know, where you, you're probably going to have more pain as a bit of a, a trade-off between elite performance, but still being healthy helps you perform better. So it's, uh, it, it is all the same stuff. Right. A good, sorry, a good rehab program is just to me a, a good strength and conditioning program. Like I have a huge respect for strength coaches in the rehab field. So this is something that I wanted to ask you about, really, because um, I think people often misquote Stu McGill. Um, oh yeah. As being, you know, they they think of him in a very kind of binary way, but whenever you listen to him, he's very much taking each patient on an individual basis and assessment. Um, but as you said, the major idea that at least I seem to see from him is this concept of spinal capacity and how much um, how much flexion load can you take in your spine or how many cycles of flexion um, until yeah. it starts to give in and as a result um, generating the the stiffness when you're training to try and avoid some of that or to try and uh, mitigate wasting spinal capacity so yeah. that's uh, that's kind of one one idea and I I see that um you have a you have a great book online which is available on your website called oh god it's like the pain this, the pain workbook yeah it's pretty lame but it, it's uh <laughs> we're we're redoing it. it it'll be better in the next uh, month or so but yeah okay. that that's it it's just to learn a bit more about pain yeah right so in that book um there's a lot about the kind of the three main facets of back pain so um for people listening the the predominant idea is kind of the biopsychosocial model of back pain and not just taking right. it on a purely mechanical basis. And you talk a bit about confrontation exercises and things to try and reduce the threat perception if you've hurt your back and um, get over that kind of pain sensitization. How, right. do, you, how do you reconcile that with um, the Stu McGill idea of kind of constantly developing spinal stiffness and always lifting with good form? Yeah, so with, with Stu stuff, it, and this is almost everyone, if you boil it down, we, we all have our, our own biases, right? So Stu would explain the success of his programs because um, he, he, what he essentially does is he finds the things that aggravate people, the biomechanical triggers, and then he – and people aren't even aware of that, right? They might not even be realizing that they're doing the things that keeps aggravating them. And then he teaches them to move in ways that doesn't – that uh, don't uh, cause that trigger again. And so someone would say, well, that's just purely biomechanical. But you could also say once you start, it's like say someone is lifting for a long time and their back is killing them. And Stu comes in and sit, teaches someone, okay, I want you to lift this way, you know, with a, with a more neutral spine where you're driving your hips back further and we're going to put more stress on the hips. And, and then the person says, and, and he decides that that's the right thing to do because it feels better. It's based on symptom modification, right? So Stu would probably explain that via the biomechanics. Someone else might say, well, what you're doing is you're giving that person control of their pain again, right? So they start moving differently. They start feeling better, you know, and they start realizing that they can control their pain. So now there's a psychological component, you know, to them feeling better. And then there's a social component as well, because then they can start training with their friends and they have control. And then where, where people, and most people agree with that if it hurts to do something, stop doing it. And now where the debate is, is, do you have to always, you know, uh, avoid that motion that once aggravated you? And that's where people start start arguing because there's a there's a group that'll say you avoid it in the short term and then you start doing that movement again. 
like that's the idea you start confronting your yourself with your ability to do something that was once painful and when it's not you know your brain kind of says hey this isn't so bad you know i'm going to turn down the threat and maybe have less pain but someone else might say no you have to avoid that forever or try to minimize it for as long as you can because you can't adapt to that that old posture so and, and that's the debate that we have that's that, really that, interesting that, though that, so you're not you you're basically saying that it's not mutually exclusive to to look at one slice of of each um each outlook i suppose and that by making a mechanical or technique adjustment that could actually that could be a way to gain confidence back in the movement and to yeah improve your sort of psychological state as well yeah and it doesn't and just because something uh works it doesn't mean it's because of biomechanics even though you're changing biomechanics like it's it's odd you if you, you guys can have someone who runs and they might be able to run two kilometers or, and and their knees start to hurt and they're jogging but then you have them do sprints and even two kilometers of sprinting, so there's more load, and that doesn't hurt as much. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's there's other reasons for for pain to change than just m merely like load and biomechanical loads. It's really interesting. Or you'll uh, see people that they feel better squatting with more weight for some reason. Like it doesn't always add up, or they brace and it feels better. That's actually more stress on the spine, right? Some something that I struggle to <clears throat> fully understand, Greg, is. You can't. You hear this idea that you should be like. Obviously, you should always be managing your injury risk. And you mentioned, yeah. you know, the idea of avoiding exercises that hurt or modifying exercises so that you're minimizing pain. But do you, do you feel like there's a there's a point to which you, you can't get around the idea that if you're lifting weights and you're progressively overloading consistently, you're gonna run into yeah pain as as part of that. And at what Talk. point is is pain? At what point does that pain become a, a point where you say, okay, this is too much now. I'm going to, I'm going to scale yeah. back. That's a beautiful question because that, that's the other, one of the big key messages of sort of pain science out there is that we should normalize aches and pains. It's normal to be sore. It's normal to be tender. Like if you, I always say like poke your friends, not like your friends, girlfriends, but you know what I mean? Like <laughs> just start, not like some swingers party from the sixties where you drop your keys in a bowl. Not that poke, but go ahead and like poke everybody you know in the shoulders, like in the trap. Or, I'm poking or, Johnny or, right now. It hurts. Yeah, I don't want to see the video of that. So um, everybody's sore. I have three little kids, and I always and at two, if you poke them in the shoulder, they're squirming away and telling you to fuck off. It's like that. Get away from. Stop experimenting on me. Why do you have kids? I said to How old are your kids? Uh, I don't know. Nine, seven, and three. <laughs> They've already learned to tell you to fuck off. <laughs> yeah, one got sent to the vice principal's office the other day. We're like, what happened? Oh, wow. <laughs> Ali asked me what the F word was, so I told her. I'm like, oh, you're an educator. You should be proud. Anyways. Yeah, that's a bit, that's a bit of a harsh punishment to be sent. I thought so. <laughs> you can tell that's a little shithead. Anyway, uh, we found out like two weeks later, just offhand. Anyway, so we want to normalize pain. So if you're training hard, you should be sore the next day. And I don't just mean delayed onset muscle soreness, but you know your tendons can be sore. You can be a little bit creaky in the morning. That's a normal adaptation, right? So normal tenderness, if you just poke on everyone, they should be sore. It's not, it's not weird. When it's a problem is when it's when you start seeing like a decline in performance, or say the pain becomes unstable. And we talk about spine stability, but we can say the same thing with stability of pain. Like as long as the next day 
you're back to your normal levels of discomfort, like like 24 hours later, then you can keep persisting in pain, provided you keep improving in your performance. Or if if you're hurting and you go do a squat and it dramatically changes your technique, then that's too much pain. But if it just hurts a little bit and then it goes away after you're squatting, then it's probably fine to persist. So, suppose- like, so it's finding that fine rule where it's like, Pain is about learning and you get better at it. As long as you're not learning to have more pain and for that pain to become a habit, it's okay to poke into pain. So right? are, you, are, you, are you progressing with your training, yes or no? Yeah. It, yeah. I suppose, so. I, does your technique stay the same, like you're not compensating in a way that you would move? And 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 does the pain not, not linger for more than a day? I suppose that feeds quite nicely back with your original point of stress management and load management. You know, If you're keeping an eye on your your RPE as it were bar speed and training load then your your soreness shouldn't be fluctuating too much it should be fairly normalized week to week session to session anyway yeah but it, and even go beyond those variables too like you want your and RPE will touch on this it it, it it wouldn't be weird for you to be more sore if you have more work stress or more emotional stress that week you're, you're just looking for any other increases and in, increases in load as well so if you can explain those sensitivities that's good as well. We're trying to normalize the idea that it, that it's okay to be sore, because some people will freak out with every ache and pain, and it's our response to that aches and pain that lead to like the disability and severe pain sometimes. So it's normal to be a bit sore. So there's a there's a direct link then you think between your life stress and and, and DOMS as it were, rather than I don't know just... about DOM. Just like I don't know. That'd be an interesting research question. I don't know about that. I, I, I don't know, but I, we would just say in injuries in general, like and in performance in general. But but if you do have more like load in your life, physiological, social, like psychological load, then people are more likely to get injured. I'm sure most people listening will have experienced that at some point where maybe they're dieting and that certainly counts as a psychological load. Or totally. they've got stuff going on in their in their lives, and uh, they're just generally feeling more beaten up from the same or comparable training volume. Yeah, and so the the take home point there is when you have those weeks where you know you're going to be under a lot of stress, or say you're traveling and not sleeping, you might feel like your stress reliever is to go like hammer your workouts. Those are probably the weeks where you you still train, but maybe you just take it easy. It's a cut down week or something like that, where you cut your volume or maybe your intensity. Right, that, I see. That would be the idea there. So, Greg, you, you touched a little bit on um, this idea of if you make yourself too sore or if you are afraid to push into the soreness um, within a kind of safe parameters, then um, that gives rise to this sensitization and threat perception. Can you tell us a little bit about the pain cycle, particularly with regard to back pain? Uh, it's, it's the, it, this will be persistent pain when it starts lasting months and months and months. It's the idea that you might have an initial trigger or injury, um, but then that can resolve itself, and then you get stuck in this habit of pain. You know, it's just like it ends up being a problem with your nervous system where you're just sensitized. So things that would once be non-painful, you now respond to them greater. You know, you you get better at it. That's the idea. You know, it's like a a fear of something. Maybe you could handle it before, but now when that fear in your life comes, boom, you just have this massive reaction to it. You know, it's like, it's like any, it's like an addiction, right? Or, you know, it's just easier and easier to get addicted to something because it's sort of a learning and memory idea. And that's what we think happens with pain. It just gets 
it persists because of other factors besides the original biomechanical injury, let's say. Right. And um, there was some Here. evidence that I, I think you pointed to as well of people adjusting their daily movement patterns, just grabbing stuff from a cupboard or putting their shoes on or something as a kind of antalgic or avoiding the, the pain. Um, and I've certainly found it myself that, you know, if I'm bending down, I might sort of rest on one knee to um, avoid the sort of standard bending. And I guess that will kind of contribute to dodging around the pain. Yeah. And the, and the idea that like there's, there's two people, there's those that kind of avoid the pattern and they get sensitized. And then there's maybe those who persist in it, they keep doing the thing that aggravates them. So if you think they're an avoider, what we do for treatment is like slowly start getting them to bend in that position that hurt and see if you can desensitize it. So now they start getting comfortable again. It's like you, you turn down the pain alarm. So the trigger is the same, you know, bending, but it's your reaction that you're trying to turn down. Or at the same time, maybe they are bending too much. Like, and this is what Stu would say, you just can't, you're kind of picking the scab. You just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And they need to be pulled back and that, avoid it for a bit and let it desensitize. That, that's it's the classic, tough. like you've, you've got a mouth ulcer and you're constantly uh, tapping yeah. it. Yeah. So do you, do you think with that in mind, Greg, is, is the idea, would, would it, post-injury, someone, someone, someone injures themselves very acutely squatting, for example, is yeah. it, would, would it be a good idea to practice that movement as soon as you can, almost like yeah. fall off a bike, this, the first thing to do is get back on a bike? They, they, they should. It's yeah. the early load, like, because now you're just dealing with tissue and sensitivity. It's like you, you, you don't want to get sensitized to that movement. So you just mm -hmm. do a little bit, you know, way under their threshold of like extreme pain, but a little bit of discomfort is OK. If you had to give a number, it'd be like three out of 10, whatever that means. It just means they're, you know, you can look at the, the idea about three out of 10 is if you looked at them and you can't tell that they're in pain, they have to tell you that it hurts. That's sort of the idea. And they can't have more like more pain tomorrow than what they had today. So they want to start doing it. It's like you say you have an aunt or an uncle who gets their hip replaced. The first thing they're doing the next day is walking on it. Right. Like we need that stress to adapt. It's both like biomechanically for tissue healing and probably for the nervous system to keep it to, to keep it uh, not too sensitive. So that's removing the psychological aspect of the pain. It, I would never parse it just to psychological. I'd say it's everything. That's purely okay. like the bios, like that's the psychobiological. Okay. Like tissue responds to load. So there's an injury idea there. There's a nervous system idea, which isn't psychological. And then there's psychological where they don't get fearful of squatting again, you know, and then, and cause pain is just meant to protect you and it's an alarm. So fear is a big component of pain sometimes. So I think, uh, Greg, this is this is why um, we were we were attracted to your writing and and wanted to get you on the podcast because um, you take quite a, um, a universal approach to things and uh, obviously if if people can check out your blog that they see that you you question every basic assumption and there is kind of movements it seems like the um, the, the pain science seems to vacillate between the the very psychosocial side of back pain and um, there's a guy called John Sarno who I know John. Yeah, yeah and pretty much says you know it's it's all in your it's all in your head, although it does manifest <clears throat> physically. And I think you see some people that have taken off on that and almost denying that tissue trauma can exist. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you see kind of the, the purest mechanical approach without any regard to the psychological impacts. So, 
a common reader complaint that we would get, for example, would, would just be, yeah, someone is prone to back pain. They often um, set their back off doing squats or deadlifts or something. What would be your typical advice to, to that? Typically with something like that, like, of course, see a therapist. <laughs> and sure. the big thing is you always want to rule out big red flags, right? You want to rule out that some sort of sinister pathology, like a cancer, tumor, infection, all of those things. And then, and then you want to rule out that it's like that, that there isn't some tissue damage. Sometimes tissue damage is, is, would be important. Like, they, like say they had leg pain, so big massive disc herniation correlating with, with leg pain. You know, some, sometimes there's, there's things that just can't heal and they, they need a little bit of help. So you rule out stuff like that. Uh, and then with people like that, you want to see like what's aggravating them. You know, what, why can they not like tolerate the stressors in their life, whether it's biomechanical or psychosocial, like what, what really triggers their pain? Um, and then you make a choice, like, can you desensitize to those triggers? Like, can you learn to tolerate them or do you have to avoid them for a bit? And that's it. That that would be it with the squat. So can they? Can is there something with their squat where they keep doing the same thing that aggravates them? And maybe for a short period of time, you you train a new squat pattern, uh, or are they just training stupid? Are they like hammering all their workouts and they've just gone past their ability to adapt and to tolerate? You know. Okay, so you so you look out for the red flags first, then look at any kind of stupid decisions they might be making in their programming or yeah. or not managing their recovery. And yeah. then at that point you say, okay, are we, are we going to be sensitizing ourselves by reintroducing the trigger or shall we slowly kind of learn to move into the pain and overcome that? Um, yeah, that's, that that's to the, the tough one. And that's the tough clinical decision. That's like expose, like do the thing that kind of hurts, but maybe slightly different or protect where you avoid it for a bit. And that's, that's the tough clinical call. And then, then at the same time you say, okay, a guy asks a simple question, like how can you be healthier? This would be the idea, like, what can you do in your life to make you tolerate this sensitivity better? Are you doing some aerobic conditioning? How is your sleep? You know, you have some hobbies, emotional stress, psychological stress, right? So you look at everything. So you can look at pain as like a cup, right? So you have a cup, and then once it overflows, like, that's the pain. When the, when the cup goes, when the water, whatever's in the cup goes outside the cup, that's pain. So you have two choices to treating pain, two choices to treating pain. You can build a bigger cup, right? Like that's their resiliency or you decrease all the things in the cup. You know, that could be the loading, that could be all their stressors, sleep, all that stuff. So just right? to clarify so, then, if someone's cup is, is, is overfilling because of maybe the kind of the acute effects of, of an injury and inflammation, would you then yeah, kind too of, much, yeah. right? So would you just let that kind of settle down before you start looking at, um, the triggers? You let it sell down, but they would still keep active, right? Okay. So that that would be the time where, where if it's uh, squatting is acutely sore, then then they want to still be training some other way. Especially if they really like training and all their friends train, and that's what they're into. You have to keep athletes doing the things that they like. That's the idea behind the psychosocial aspect, right? You know, and definitely there's biomechanical, biological components, but you know, I hate to, I never actually. I rarely tell people to stop doing things that they like. I don't think I ever have really. Like, it's no matter funny because what it, that's the sort of figure out a way to work around it for sure. I mean, that's the classic sort of doctor thing to do. Where <laughs> if someone says, you know, I've I've injured myself doing this, and they'll just say, well, just stop doing that. And obviously, no, that's not like, realistic to tell a, a full time athlete. Like, <laughs> they can goblet squat. They can 
do a hack squat. They can do they can still train some way and start doing one legged stuff. Like there there's always something that you can figure out. Always. Like I can't even think of a condition. Say they had osteoporosis and spinal fractures. Like they they still should be loading their spine some way. You just got to work around it. They have a stress fracture even. As long as it's not hurting too much, they, that stress fracture, and as long as it's not one that's going to go to like a full fracture, a high-risk fracture, they still load it. They have muscle tears. You still load a muscle tear. Tendinopathy, you still load the shit out of it. Like, <laughs> like nothing, nothing changes, right? You, you start saying no to all that stuff, and that starts freaking people out. Right, so from a mechanical perspective and to, to not let them develop a kind of phobia of the, of the trigger, we want to get back onto loading safely as soon as possible yeah and that's perfect and safely right and and that's that fine line of how much do they push it and i'm not saying be an idiot just start hammering stuff but that's where you use the simple rules is this pain acceptable am i going to harm myself tomorrow am i going to really pay for it tomorrow so we'll quote you on that then the um We'll right. make the, uh, the, the title of the podcast, if you've injured your back squatting, go for a 1RM the next day. <laughs> yeah. It's probably quite refreshing for people to hear, though, that like even when you're injured, you would still load the area or at least still continue training. Because I think probably one of the hardest things that I've ever dealt with when it comes to injury is the, is the aftermath and thinking this is a long road from where I am now to getting back to where I can progress again session to session. And you start having these... You know, it, it's, it's a stress in itself, I suppose, like a downward spiral of thought patterns of I'm going to have to not train properly for months on end and see a physio loads of times and they're going to tell me to not train. So it's quite, it's yeah. refreshing to hear a, a different opinion on that, I suppose. Like, say you broke your left foot, you should still be training the hell out of your right side. You could do mirror work, you could even do imagined work on your left foot, and you could be doing squats on your right and one-legged squats, and that stuff will carry over... To the left side if it's not gonna the left won't get stronger but it won't get as inhibited and it won't lose as much muscle mass and it won't lose as much fitness it's amazing that's the cross education and all that stuff did or say, or the say, imagery work yeah. did, did you say imagined work yeah you could do imagined squatting right you know you just <laughs> i have patients do it all the time it's ridiculous but you think of athletes do it like golfers do it all the time all that imagined work and there are the ideas that movement starts in the brain like when you guys got better at squatting in your first eight weeks, it wasn't really your muscles that changed, right? Is yeah, your see, it's just the sort of neural efficiency and the motor patterns that get ingrained. Yeah. So yeah. Do you, you just you just sit and think about it? Is that what you mean? <laughs> yeah, and grunt and stuff. You could do, like, whatever makes it more context-specific, right? So really imagine that you're squatting and straining. You could brace your core, you could brace your other legs, and then you feel like you're doing it. That would be the idea. See, I'm just going to trade like that from now on. <laughs> you guys, I don't know if there's research on it. I feel like I've read something, but it wouldn't surprise me. I guarantee some powerlifters do imagined deadlifts before they go out there on stage or wherever you guys lift shit. I don't I mean, know. Yeah, like in, ter- in terms of like visualization, in at least I'm, I'm sure I've seen some data with basketball players improving yeah. their accuracy. And um Interestingly, as well, I just saw this the other day that when you read, if you're sub vocalizing and you're kind of reading it in your head, your yeah, brain, your, mouth, your lips move. You're one of those guys. <laughs> well, not, <laughs> not, not that far, but the but but yeah, the brain does send signals to the vocal cords, um, even though there's no kind of intention of reading it out. So I'm sure oh, cool. that you can yeah, just by visualization, we're certainly 
um, can sort of rewire yourself. That's cool. the idea, to, to decrease the strength loss. And what you said, maintain that neural efficiency. That. So, when sure. it, so I think what we've been discussing so far is someone has pain or an injury from training or something that, that happens in the gym or in a sport. How do you feel about you know someone dealing with pain that they don't do anything that has seemingly caused it? So I think everyone knows someone who has chronic back pain but has never exercised a day in their life or their knee hurts or their shoulder hurts. How do you go about dealing with and diagnosing that? And what do you think causes those problems? Oh, I mean, that's normal. That's like, that's usually how most pain occurs, right? And then it, that's where it's really difficult because we really don't know. And you don't always have to know the cause, right? There may not be any physical cause. Because once, again, it's normal to have some pain, right? Everyone will have some shoulder pain, some knee pain. You guys might step on a stair, and for the first few steps, the first few steps, it's killing in your kneecap, right? Hmm. And so the the idea is that you have all of these stressors in your life, mechanical load, phys- physical load, psychological, and we have these normal aches and pains that creep up. But sometimes we have a big reaction to that ache and pain, and then we get stuck in this disability cycle, right, where the pain just starts persisting and you get better at it. And that's the idea where that's why you have to look at everything. Everything in your life that can sensitize you can be associated with giving you more pain. Because I suppose the, the standard assumptions, um, see, so you take sort of the average average office worker who sits at a desk all day and they get back pain, they get hip pain, neck pain, the big shopping list of injuries or, or, or not injuries, niggles and pain. And yeah. they, they start to assume or they're told that that's because of their posture or the way that they're sitting or the fact that they're sitting. And it's very yeah. trendy at the moment, you know, that sitting is the new smoking and where we're all going to die early because we, we sit in chairs rather than stand. How much do you think posture and sitting play into pain in any, any joint? Like not too much. And let, like, I, I don't think it causes it. What I think can happen with some people is they get normal pain. And let's say their pain is associated with neck flexion or spine flexion. Then they just keep aggravating themselves. So it's like not the posture isn't inherently bad. It's just if you always sit in the same way, then you just keep aggravating and aggravating it, right? And, and it'll get in relief. Or, or the opposite happens. Some people will feel like they need to sit up straight all the time at their desk because that's what they've been told, right? And it actually sits. It hurts to sit up straight, yet they keep doing it because they think they should. So they keep poking the bear, so to speak, and right. they keep activating it, right? So what we say is like with pain is you're allowed to poke the bear. I mean, a little bit of discomfort, but they go beyond that and they start humping the shit out of the bear. <laughs> <laughs> Never hump like, the bear. No bear babies. Like they, and so they keep doing the thing that aggravates them, but it's not sitting inherently that's the problem. It's just that the pain got associated with sitting. Or, and then what you also want to say is the sitting is just part of their normal life and we get caught up with the idea that it's sitting that causes the pain and we should be looking at everything in their life that can be sensitizing them. You know, so yeah, they might feel a little bit better if they sit differently or sit less, but you could also say, well, how do we build that cup bigger? You know, where can you be healthy in your life and how can we desensitize it? Like start strength training again, start walking, get into social activities or sports and hobbies and be happier and deal with the anxiety or depression that you have. And then now all of a sudden, the sitting doesn't matter anymore, right? They can sit all day. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think um, I've, I've seen Stu McGill uh, say that it's one of the great unfair things in life that 
um, generally the couch potato has kind of the lowest incidence of, of back pain. And then you get all the, the people who are active and lifters and things that are the ones that, that struggle with this stuff. Yeah, it's not that, I don't know if it's less, it's like, it's just that it's the same amount. So I know Stu, and when I worked with him, Lisa Cheeps, like sitting, had more low back pain incidents. Not anymore, like the, the past reviews in the past 20 years say sitting is just the same. You know, you're, you're not any more likely, uh, you know, to have back pain if you sit more than the average person. That being said, we shouldn't encourage sitting, right? Like it, the problem with sitting is that you're not being active, right? So it, there's other reasons to get on board the anti-sitting train, but it, m- pain probably isn't the best one. It's just general health and everything. What that's, it seems to come, come down to is, is just not staying in the same position for long periods of time. It doesn't really matter what that position is. As long as it's not painful, as as I suppose. Yeah. So yeah. constant movement and different different positions throughout the day. And well, so now I'm sounding like a dick again. But even that that and that used to be my bias, just move around. But when you look at the research that has people move around, have different positions, that doesn't matter either. So like, if they want to move around, go ahead. But you'll have people who can just sit however they like, and they'll be fine too. It's more like just saying it's not that big of a deal either way. And people will naturally move if they're sore, right? How many guys? How many times have you guys shifted your positions in the past forty minutes? Oh my god, hundreds. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's the idea. That's what nociception, which is sometimes a precursor to pain, that actually catalyzes people to move. Like your tissues, the sensors in your tissues are always telling you to move, right? We do it naturally. What if you had like ass leprosy? Like, <laughs> I, I hate brown. ass leprosy yeah well the, the worst kind is ass leprosy right like because then you just have your ass falling apart because you'd have no signals like telling you to move like lepers they don't have nociception and boom they have uh they don't move and then they get tissue damage right so we actually move we don't need to tell people to start moving i suppose as well you know if you get people with neuropathies and they get bed sores in um, an hospital and so on or if, yeah, that's yeah. more appropriate analogy. That's a better one. <laughs> but <laughs> ass leprosy works well as well. Ass um, leprosy, which I don't even know exists. But. So, so it's something that... It um, sounds like a pretty good insult, eh? You ass leper. <laughs> better yeah, than a supple our, leper. half our readership now. All of the ass, ass lepers that listen to us. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's something as well. You, you notice that So when the, the meditation practitioners that or the instructors that say to you pick a position and then you sit there for 40 minutes and you don't move and you realize oh, I... like how uncomfortable it <laughs> becomes. You just get these waves of back and knee pain and stuff. And it, I guess if you, if you fight the urge to move, you realize how often you would, you would want to naturally shuffle around. Yeah. And, and that's the idea behind avoiding the perfect posture, right? Cause if you tell someone you have to sit in this position, it's naturally uncomfortable. So they keep like, picking the scab is the idea just let people move however they like so like i have my feet up on my desk right now and my spine's in flexion <laughs> e, that's <Yeah>. so naughty <laughs> so so it sounds greg like you're saying that everything's fine and people can just do do what they'd like yeah as long as it's not really hurting yeah that's the idea okay like, that's again again very the, refreshing the research often leads to something really simple it's quite a nice message to hear, though, because we often we often hear so much scaremongering, um, especially with you know never under any circumstances flex your spine, <laughs> and um, it yeah I'm sure it does give rise to um, this catastrophization and the yeah. sensitization as well. So, yeah, totally. Greg, we wanted to get your uh, quick fire opinion on on a few topics <laughs> as well. Um, 
So I know we've discussed posture and um, and general tightness. What are your thoughts towards um, doing so- soft tissue work on yourself? Uh, you know, I, I'm like, I have to be consistent. Like before I might've been critical of that. I think I was just critical of the mechanisms that people were talking about. But now if I'm saying, if you want to sit, however you like, then of course, if you want, if you want to roll shit on yourself, go ahead. <laughs> you know, it's like, not they're like super powerful or super negative, right? Like the body is robust. It, it can tolerate a foam roller. Uh, I would say if you have like a tendinopathy, so it's like tendon-related pain where it's inserting onto a bone, I would avoid sometimes rolling those things, you know, because tendons don't like compression as much. But if you want to do the muscles around there and the tissue around there, it's probably totally fine and it feels better. And then the, the other caveat would, would be as long as you're not doing that instead of something else that's better for you, like a good warm-up or training or extra sets or anything like that. Okay, or, so you're saying it basically comes under the umbrella of like hobby <laughs> yeah i don't think we have enough evidence like says that it's a must but like if you have the time there's probably no reason not to other than yeah. other than time the foam rolling hobby so, so basically like if you want to roll roll around on the floor then you're very welcome to but you should probably spend some time training in and... the same way that like yeah. you could throw a you could throw a tennis ball off the wall for 20 minutes at the end of your session if you want to like you're not going to hurt yourself but it probably yeah. won't do anything for you. Is that what you're saying? It might actually. That'd be a good cool down. Cool down, what are the kids calling it? Yeah. These conversations are so hard to have because I, I come away thinking, right, well, I, everything that I thought I should be doing doesn't really matter. Like the carpet I, has just been... I can just kind of do what I like as long as it doesn't hurt. Hey, like a, be yeah, I know. Like I know a foam roller can help people with pain. You know, cause the reason that is because it hurts, and you have something called, called diffuse noxious inhibitory control, where your your brain will release some chemicals so it feels better. But if you want to go get your nipples pierced and be pulled up to the ceiling, that'd do the same thing too for a lot. <laughs> like, I mean, not foam rollers. They probably a huge correlation with body piercing. All right, and the the nipple thing sounds more fun as well. So. Well, sure, you guys are from your Brit, so that's what y'all do. Oh, yeah, but we're, we're all so here. It's kind of a one-off thing, isn't it? <laughs> but you're getting pierced and then repeatedly being pulled up to the ceiling. I think so, but it, obviously, <laughs> I, as Greg said, it, it is a typical British activity to... To just you know, to, to have that done. It's actually one of our national, historic, sort of traditional um, <laughs> things to do as well, particularly around Christmas. And attach it to your, like, like, a little bit of a cheat. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, on the note of... Uh, soft tissue work as well how do you feel about manual therapies again i i i think they're all fine like the idea behind manual therapy and foam rolling is as long as it's not getting in the way of other good therapy like i know that people can get a lot of relief from manual therapy for two to three days uh and there's nothing wrong with that to to me you know uh the, the the only problem with manual therapy like for our patients and most therapists know this so it's not it's like um do people feel like they need fixing? Like, do they have like some false belief about their body where they've had pain for a year and a half and they think their SI joint is out of position or they have adhesion in, in their quadratus lumborum and they need someone to come in and fix them or they can't do their sport. Now the now their belief about manual therapy is maybe getting in the way of them really resolving their pain, right? That's a shitty belief. So that's where manual therapy is a problem. But All if right. it's just like, you want you'll feel better and you compete on the weekend and you have no disability and it's not a big deal for sure do manual therapy 
I compete in powerlifting quite frequently, Yusuf less so because of back pain, ironically. But you hear a lot things like you should be getting a massage a week. You should be consistently foam rolling, consistently stretching. I'd like to know from your perspective with your area of expertise, if you were someone who was regularly strength training with the goal of getting stronger and currently weren't injured, how would you go about arranging your day, your week, your month, your lifestyle to kind of maximize your chances of progression, minimize the chances of injury? I I wouldn't do any of those little extra things. It it would be get a good coach who 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 knows training and all and all the progressions and all the variables. I mean, it comes down to the simple stuff of just the the slow app, it's slow and smart application of load and balancing the load with recovery. But I I don't think the the massage and the, the foam rolling is is necessary. Uh, that would be the big thing. I I think some of those people might get some help, but. I don't think any of it's uh, necessary, but I'd be I'd be op- totally open to be proven wrong here. So do you think uh, that, do you feel that comes at odds with with your training as a chiropractor in terms of spinal adjustments, or would you classify yeah. them separately? No, my, my no, uh, my training was pretty cool. Where they they were really um, they never said uh, some people would that they never said you have to get manipulated, right, or adjusted. That's 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 a classic chiro thing that you need a regular maintenance. But that was never really taught, and it wasn't taught as as like the doctrine at at my school. They were very good. Um, so, right. so no, it, yeah, those are all extras and and probably not necessary for lots of people. That's interesting, and I suppose as you said, if it reinforces the idea that you're broken and you're going to someone to to fix you and sort of click you back into place, um, that yeah. that could maybe but, do more harm than good. But at the same time, if, if people are training and competing really well and they've found that they've liked going to their massage therapist or their chiro or their physio every every three weeks and there's no disability and they're they're doing amazing, then then how the hell can we say that that, that that's wrong? I, I like I, so again, we're robust in lots of areas too. I don't think everyone's gonna fall apart because they think they need a manipulation or a massage every few weeks. So I guess it's a bit it's a bit difficult as well to measure these things when um, a physiotherapist or massage therapy and the, none of them are kind of um, hom- homogeneous so to do the data on it and to see whether on a large scale they improve people's outcomes or not I guess is quite hard because every therapist is different and will be working with people oh, yeah. in different ways yeah and, and and with elite sport there is a psychobiological component to performance right and to effort if you look at Samuel Marcora's work on endurance athletes like you know, perception of effort is huge and these psychological factors are huge. So if, if someone, I, I mean, if someone works with a performance therapist and they, they feel like they perform better, uh, with that soft tissue treatment, then, and then that could influence the effort level and they might actually, it might actually be helpful. So I'm, I'm hard to not to slam it, although it doesn't resonate with me, but I don't want to tell people how to practice. That's I suppose sure. it's just a question of, of resource allocation, isn't it? For someone who's trying their best to sort of get the most out of the effort that they put into the gym, and is there anything they can do to enhance or maximize that? If the if this stuff isn't necessarily, you know, if there isn't a glowing body of research behind, you know, frequent massage, frequent foam rolling, frequent stretching, um, then it's maybe a misallocation of, of that time if that could be spent, you know, getting more sleep or putting more effort into managing your training better, I guess. Do yeah, you feel that idea. Some, something that we've, both of us have started doing um, more, I suppose, just because it's a, 
a, re- a nice relaxing <laughs> hour to, to sort of insert into your week is, is a yoga practice. Do you feel that yoga is a bad idea for someone engaged in strength training? The reason no, I don't. So, and, and you guys, and I used to, and, and I think that was unfair. Um, cause the, the idea was that yoga would make you less stiff and it doesn't really dramatically. And there's even an argument that prolonged acute stretching, static stretching might make your tendons a little stiffer, at least when it comes to the, what's called the hysteresis loop of the tendon. It's a bit confusing, but uh, where the tendon becomes a little less compliant on, on the, um, concentric part of the eccentric concentric force curve there. So you actually might be more efficient with prolonged acute stretching. Right, I see. Because the, yeah. the the reason we were asking this is just because of um, I don't know if you've seen Stu McGill's podcast with um, there was an interview recently about yoga and powerlifting being incompatible with each other, as you said, because of the kind of uh, de or the softening of the collagen in the spine from the repeated sort of flexion extension. Yeah. Of your spine so the assumption it. there with Stu is that it's the disc, right? Yeah. So that that's always the crux. With, with with that's the crux of everything of that debate is does the disc really delaminate you know and is it more prone to injury with repeated flexion extension and 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 that's what we have to resolve so Stu based that on his his animal models the cadaver animal model um and and the only limitation that and this, it's on other things too is like that's a dead animal model right mm. so we don't know how well like if we knew this if we knew this answer better if we knew how well an alive human disc responded to repeated flexion extension, like if there was the right amount of load for it to make it adapt, then we'd be able to answer that question a little bit more. So right. Stu's taking like a least like a least harm approach where he he thinks, and I totally under respect this, that the repeated flexion extension in the disc will cause delamination, that it's possible. So why take the risk of doing yoga would be the idea, even if it's if there's uncertainty there. And in your writing so, as well, I've, I've seen you say that um, disc injuries maybe contribute to quite a low percentage of total back pain. Yeah, that's the debate too. So it would be the idea, like, <clears throat> if if repeated flexion does create disc delamination and herniation, and the problem with herniation is you get nerve root compression, then we, then we say that's only like 1% of all low back pain. Uh, so this assumption that's not that big of a deal, because the idea is that we can have disc bulging, which is disc delamination and the nuclear material starts to push out. So the disc bulges out a little bit and that doesn't seem to be well correlated with pain. So even if you do, you know, get this delamination with yoga, it doesn't seem maybe to be that much of a problem. That That's the other idea, way to look at it. So, but it's a debate and I, I respect both sides there. I think there's, there's quite a, 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 a well, there's a large group of, of quite high level powerlifters who seem to think, you know, obviously this is just their experience and they're spending time doing it. So they're obviously biased, but they seem to contribute some of their increase in, in performance to the the general flexibility and, and stability that, that yoga gives them. I suppose right. when you're doing something that is very, you know, you're always in one plane of motion with squatting and benching and deadlifting and very, very rarely doing other things. Something yeah. like yoga is going to put you, challenge you in different positions as well. So... I don't know. I guess, as you say, like it's there's uncertainty around it, and um, no, we know. No, and that's not that's not uncommon in lots of strength training, right? It's like you sort of say, "What are you missing in your program?" Okay, well, that's what you should add for a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like a general rule, often for strength coaches. So the, the I suppose the last question we have for you, Greg, is is aimed at sleeping. 
Um, yeah, and I think you probably should. anybody who's listening to this has experienced you train on a Monday, maybe do a squat or a deadlift or something that involves spinal loading. Tuesday morning, you wake up and when you get out of bed, you're like, oh, my back, my back's so tight. And there are some people who believe that it's down to sleeping position. I know for a long time, I followed Kelly Starrett, who I'm assuming you're familiar with. Yeah, I like um, Kelly. But he has um, quite a few videos actually on sleeping position. And he how... and his wife? <laughs> so, sorry? That's a, a behind closed doors, the member's access. It's him and his wife's sleeping position. <laughs> <laughs> it's private webcam it's probably, Yeah, yeah. Um, but he talks about, like, don't sleep on your back, don't sleep on your front. Oh, no, you can sleep on your back, but don't sleep on your front because it forces you into extension. And that oh, you who should, cares? Like, who cares? Fine, yeah. great. So, I, I, I do like Kelly. I, do, I disagree, but that's cool. Everyone disagrees. Uh, because, I mean... It, it, he, Kelly's both a movement optimist and a movement pessimist, right? Uh, and when it comes to low, low activities, I think he's too much of a movement pessimist there. Like, if you, what's wrong with what's wrong with a little bit of extension? Like, why the hell do we have blocks in our spine? It's meant to move, you know. So, so who cares? And then the, <laughs> like, there's you just tolerate it. I, I've I used to have extension related back pain. And it wasn't a big deal because I didn't do anything extension-wise, but I'd be sore in the morning because I slept on my stomach. Um, how I treated that was I started doing more extension. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, that's, you know, and you I, started do all, I just to do it. You know, because I'm now I'm doing like back handsprings and back tucks, which require extension. But there's nothing inherently wrong with extension. That's, right? that's the, a pretty cool a success low, story When you're sleeping, well. there's such low loads. The reason it hurts in the morning is because everyone hurts in the morning because you haven't been moving all night. If you're in any position where you're not moving, you're going to be sore, right? And your discs start to swell at night. It's no big deal. You're like three quarters of an inch taller, so there's a little bit more pressure back there. So you're not moving, more pressure, hurts in the morning. It's pretty good to hear that you went from extension-based back pain to doing back handsprings and back tucks and stuff. That's definitely a success story if I've seen one. Yeah, and all I did was slowly like I have no no back extension, and again it's an anecdote which is which doesn't mean anything, but you know I just slowly did it, and I every now and then I'd flare up because I did too much, but over the course of four months, you know now I can go into extension and like I would hate lying on my back, like that much extension was like I if you lie on your back there's extension there, and I couldn't lie on a hard floor on my back. Yeah. So, well, in summary, then, just poke the bear very gradually. Yeah. Don't hump the bear. That's and, it. And yeah, you'll probably be fine. Fine. Yeah, that, that's, and everyone kind of know. like, most people figure this out on their own. That's the interesting thing with some therapy. Is you do this all the time. It hurts. You're like, oh, what's that? You start to do it again. Oh, it feels better. It goes away. Oh, okay. It starts to feel worse after five to ten minutes, so you avoid it, and then it goes away. Like, we, we kind of... <laughs> Yeah, we see the people who aren't successful in doing that. Well, Greg, yeah. it has been fascinating talking to you. Um, how can our readers find out more about you? Um, my website, I guess. Um, cool. Or Twitter. Yeah. So you're on, you're on Twitter. You're on Facebook as well. Anything else? Yeah, uh, that's it. I oh Instagram, but that's just me doing backflips. <laughs> well, I, I think everyone needs. I'm tracking my progress. Everyone likes backflips. Yeah. Cool. We will stick some links to that in uh, the description. Super. Well, Greg, it's been fantastic chatting to you. Um, I certainly oh, nice. feel a lot better now. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure a lot of a lot of listeners will as well. Great. All right. That's everything from this episode from of the not from of the perfect. <laughs> Bloody hell. That is everything 
from this episode of the Pro Pin Fitness Podcast. We'll speak to you next time.